Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you are just now joining us, or you're, you're joining us for the first time in a while, or you uh, just had a particularly long week and you forgot what happened last week, we are approaching the end of the book of Matthew. We are, we are getting there slowly but surely. And today we are hopping back into the story uh, in the middle of a pretty, what I would call a pretty high octane evening. For, for Jesus. So last week, we talked about how Jesus was arrested by an armed mob in the middle of the night. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, attacked one of these guys with a sword, cut his ear off, and then all of Jesus' disciples ditched him and ran. And so... That's where we're picking up today. Uh, so it's not, not, a, not a calm moment in the story or in Jesus' life. So we are actually going to pick up this, this story in Matthew 26, verse 57 is where we're going to start this. So it says, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So this crowd who arrested Jesus takes him to the house of a guy named Caiaphas. This translation doesn't put that in there, but a couple different translations, and if you look at the original language, specifically says they took him to Caiaphas' house. Um, So we are first introduced to Caiaphas. We we talked about him a few weeks ago uh, at the beginning of chapter 26 uh, when the chief priests were first at his house trying to come up with a way that they could kill Jesus. So we are now back at Caiaphas' house. So that plan that they were hatching is now in motion. Um, So Jesus has been arrested by this mob. He has been brought to Caiaphas' house where another crowd is waiting for him at at Caiaphas' house. So this is like a planned get-together. Nobody's like, oh my gosh, Jesus, this is crazy seeing you here. Everyone knew that this was happening. They were were setting him up and they were waiting for him at Caiaphas' house. We're going to get to more of that in just a little bit. And so we also see in the beginning of this passage, Peter, who is one of the disciples, like we just said, who ran away in the garden. Um, But it says that he, quote, followed him at a distance. Um, So Peter does not get mentioned again in our passage today. We'll talk about that actually next week. Uh, But he is following to see what happens to Jesus. But he is hanging back. And and he is hanging back so far uh, that his intention is to not be associated with Jesus. And he he is so far removed and he's doing such a good job of this that it actually tells us that he sat down with the guards to watch. So he's under the radar. He's doing a pretty good job of hiding. Uh, Very interesting way of conducting oneself, I think, when you literally just told Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But, you know, I I digress. We'll talk about that more next week. Um, So Peter does not get brought up again today, but I think think it's interesting to see just uh, how he is kind of following along with Jesus, and we'll unpack that more next week. But it is the way that this plays out in Peter's life is, is super impactful, I think, for all of us. Um, All right, we'll pick back up. Verse 59, it says, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. 
but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. So I think we need a little bit of historical context for, for this to make sense. So the Sanhedrin uh, is essentially just like the ancient Jewish court system. And so it was made up of, of some local political and religious authorities within the Jewish community. And so as with most legal bodies or legal proceedings, they had specific rules that, that they were supposed to follow in how they operated as a court. That makes sense, I think, uh, for, a, for a court to have rules of how they're supposed to do things. Um, and the reason I think it's important for us to mention that and why we need some historical context is because everything that we have read up until this point about how this is going with the Sanhedrin shows us this is actually a glaring violation of multiple rules in that system at the time. Uh, Pretty much nothing, actually, about what they are doing, nothing about the way this trial happens was how trials were supposed to happen at the time. So first, uh, there was a rule that the Sanhedrin was only supposed to meet during the day. Uh, we just read how Jesus was in the garden at night with his disciples, and he actually told Peter in verse 34, he said, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter has not disowned Jesus yet. There has been no rooster, right? We, we actually get to that situation next week, like I just said. My point is, this trial is not happening during the day. This is still in the middle of the night. Most likely in the very, very early hours of the morning, but what most normal people call night. Second, the Sanhedrin had a rule that they were only allowed to meet in very specific locations. Like, this is the, this is the building that the Sanhedrin is allowed to convene in. Um, none of those buildings included the high priest's house. That was not one of the options for a, for a legal proceeding. Think about how you would feel if you rolled up to someone's house thinking you were like, we're just going to go hang out at this guy's house. And as soon as you walked in, he was like, hey, man, um, I actually asked a judge to be here uh, and a few people that hate you most in the world. We're going we're gonna to try you for murder. <laughs> be like, hmm, so no charcuterie, I guess. Uh, that's how I would react, I, I think. That's not how this is supposed to work, right? That's not how going to someone's house works. Uh, third, Sanhedrin trials are not supposed to reach a conviction on the same day that the trial begins. This was a very clear rule that they had. Um, that is exactly what is about to happen. We're, we're gonna see that in just a minute. Fourth, a con because of that rule, because a conviction was not supposed to happen on the same day that a trial began, None of these trials were supposed to be held the day before a festival or the day before a Sabbath because you were not going to be able to meet the next day, which we find out in the next chapter is exactly when this is. This is the day before the Sabbath that this is all happening. And lastly, uh, the trials, uh, Sanhedrin trials are all supposed to begin with the accused person giving a case for their defense. That's how it was supposed to open up. And, and right out the gate, we see things kick off here. It says, with multiple people coming forward testifying against Jesus. So it does not start with the accused person giving a defense. And, and if all of that is not enough to highlight the fact that this, this whole trial is a sham, we just read that they were, quote, looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. In case it is not clear to anyone here, 
If a court is specifically looking for false evidence that supports a conviction that they have already landed on, that is not a fair trial. Uh, I think that can hardly be called a trial at all. This is like a weird combination of an arraignment and a verdict all rolled into one. This is not at all how this works. So the chief priests, the leaders who have, who have called this sham trial, they have false witnesses come forward to try to, to justify this, this verdict that they've already decided about Jesus. Uh, but what's really funny to me about this passage and, and about this account is that despite their best efforts of breaking all of the rules to rig this trial, they are still failing to do it, right? They could not even get the people that they lined up to lie to, to do it well enough to convict Jesus. So it, when the people that you paid to rig a trial can't rig the trial, you're in a tough spot, honestly. Uh, but, but they plow on with determination, right? Uh, so keep reading. Uh, we're going to get to verse 61 here. It says, finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So at this point, there is no telling how many false witnesses that they have gone through. Uh, but people have just been coming out offering lies, false testimonies about Jesus. No one can agree on the false testimonies, so they can't land on anything. But we finally see two people come forward with something that the chief priests feel like they can work with. And, and this is a really interesting turn to me because of what these witnesses say. Uh, if, if you're not super familiar with the different gospel accounts of, of the story of Jesus, there, there's actually an interaction in the book of John where Jesus comes into the temple in Jerusalem. He essentially like hulks out on everybody there. He's flipping tables. He's cracking a whip that he made himself. Very resourceful. He's driving people out of the temple for what he says is defiling my father's house. That is what he says. And this interaction uh, that we see between Jesus and, and the Jewish people, this, this happens in John chapter two, right after this has all happened. So we're gonna put this on the screen. John 2, 18, it says, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now we know that Jesus was referring to himself in that interaction. He, he was alluding to the fact that shortly after this interaction, they would have him killed. And then after that, he would come back to life, come back from the grave after three days. But the two witnesses that we see in Jesus's trial in Matthew, they put a bit of a twist on Jesus's words, on, the, on this account that we see of Jesus's words. It could be a variety of reasons. It could be that they misremembered what Jesus said. It could be that they misunderstood what Jesus said. Maybe they, maybe they twisted wor Jesus' words intentionally to, to make him sound threatening, or, or maybe just to fit their own agenda. Whatever it is, we don't know exactly why they say what they say in this trial. But I, I do find it incredibly interesting that the only false evidence that they were able to hit Jesus with was actually just a misrepresentation of something that he actually did say. Uh, but after they do this, after they claim that Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple, the chief priests then turn to questioning Jesus themselves. 
So we'll pick up in verse 62. It says, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So now the high priest turns to Jesus and and asks him to respond to to what was just said about him. And Jesus does not say a word. He He doesn't give a defense for himself now that he's given the opportunity. He doesn't respond to this this misrepresentation of something that, that he said. And then after Jesus refuses to answer, the high priest turns around and asks Jesus another question that is entirely unrelated to anything else that has been set up until this point. Right, this question has absolutely nothing to do with what any of these witnesses have just said. And it's also the most direct question about Jesus' identity that we have seen up until this point. The chief priest outright asks Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus doesn't dodge this question, right? Look at how he responds. He says, you have said so. So that's the kind of response that you would use uh, if, if someone were to say something that you agree with, but you just didn't feel like saying it yourself. You know, we, we do this. For example, if someone's like, oh my gosh, I'm so annoying, you might be like, ah, you said it. I mean, <laughs> mm, not me, like, but I didn't say it for the record. But Jesus is confirming what they just said. He is confirming that he is the Messiah, just in a, a somewhat indirect sort of way. He, he is saying, everything happening right now sure would seem to indicate that I am. Right? But then it says, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So not only does Jesus not deny that he is the Messiah and not deny that he is the Son of God, he actually goes a step further and he says, you know what, from now on, uh, you're gonna be seeing me sitting at the right hand of God. That's, uh, That's a bold statement. Basically he's saying, hey, I don't need to confirm who I am because pretty soon God's gonna confirm it. That is the the boldest and most direct claim that Jesus has made about himself uh, and about his identity. And it is the only thing that Jesus says in this entire trial. He does not say another word. So I I just think it's so cool. And I mean, in my opinion, the only words that Jesus speaks in this entire ordeal is to confirm his identity and also to, to ultimately seal his fate. That is what he does when he says this, because look, look at how they respond in the last part of the passage. It says, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. So after all this happens, we finally see an official charge made against Jesus. They accuse him of blasphemy because of what he has said about his identity, which would have been an entirely legitimate charge against anyone who claimed to be the son of God, except for the son of God, right? 
But they, they land on a conviction. And, and to add insult to, uh, extra insult to this, they, they keep going. The, the last part of our passage for today, it says, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So there's our passage for today. Uh, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. This is the local court. He's put on trial and he is convicted. But this whole trial is a mockery, honestly. They don't follow procedure for how this is supposed to go. They had already decided on a sentence that they wanted, and and they were going to try to find a means to to get there. Whatever it took, they were going to find a way to get to their conviction that they had already decided on. And the only people there to testify were, were many false witnesses, is what we're told. So I I think it's really important for us to to obviously just see the passage for what it is and read it for what it is, but I also think that it's it's important for us to to see not only the actions that the chief priests and the people took, not just the injustice that they they take against Jesus, but, but specifically the posture that they take in everything that's happening. We really need to pay attention to the things that are going on under the surface. So in this passage, we see a group of people who have already made up their minds about who Jesus is. They have, they have already made up their minds on what they're gonna do with him and what they're gonna do with the things that he has said about them and about their lives. They have already decided to reject Jesus. Nothing that he says and nothing that he does is gonna change their minds. They have decided to reject Jesus and now they're just looking for reasons that they feel like they can justify their decision. That's what's happening in this passage. Now, at, at first glance, uh, at least for me, th- this seems like a pretty outlandish way to operate in general, don't you think? This is, a pretty, this is a pretty warped way, a messed up way to approach somebody. But as irrational, I think, as, as the posture seems, I, it is how the chief priests approached Jesus. It, it may seem outlandish, or it does seem outlandish to me to approach anyone that way, but that's exactly how they approached Jesus. And, and the more that I thought about it working up to, to teaching this, this passage and, and writing this teaching, is, uh, as much as it, as it pains me to acknowledge it, I don't think that we have to look all that hard to find this exact same posture in many of us today. Uh, in fact, I think that we are pretty inundated with this posture in, in our lives and in our society, which is part of what makes it so dangerous, is it's so, so common and so pervasive that, that we often don't even realize that it's happening. And so I want to spend the rest of our time today just trying to show you what I mean and, and doing my best to try to help all of us identify this posture in ourselves and to try to point us back to the hope that is found in Jesus. So th- this posture is, is everywhere, honestly. It, it, it's in all of us. I, I meet people in the church all the time who, who are very aware of what the Bible teaches about, about sex, about sex being a beautiful thing that is created for the context of marriage. They know that, but they don't really care too much for what it says about that. 
right? They're, they're fully aware of what the Bible teaches, and they've actually already decided uh, that they think it's, it's a little too restrictive, honestly. And so they, they reject what Scripture teaches about it, and, and, and they'll decide to, to sleep with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their fiancé, any of these things. And, and, and then they go on to try to find reasons to justify this decision that they've already made. Well, the Bible really is only concerned with adultery, right, or promiscuity and sleeping with lots of people, but we're fully committed to each other, so we're fine, right? We're basically married in in God's eyes. Surely God is going to be fine with this. He wasn't talking about us. Some of us look at what Jesus and the biblical authors teach about money and and generosity and the dangers of greed and materialism, and we, we see that and we understand it. And then we think, well, living sacrificially doesn't really seem all that appealing uh, at times. And, and we don't really want to part with our comfort or with our resources or with the, with the life that we've built for ourselves. And so we hold back and, res- and, and, we, and we reject some of those teachings. We don't care too much for what the Bible has to say about that. So, so then we justify rejecting it. You know, Jesus was obviously talking to people who had a lot of money, right? I don't have a lot of money. I don't feel like I have a lot of money. Other people have way more money than I do. He's talking to them, obviously, not me. Uh, There's so many resources that exist in our world today that didn't exist in Jesus' time for people who are in need. So giving directly to people with less than me contextually is not what Jesus is talking about. There's so many caveats that Jesus didn't lay out, right? I've got to hit my investment goals first. I've got to hit my savings goals first, and then we'll see if I can find ways to be generous, right? Jesus didn't know anything about IRAs. Come on, like that's, if he did, he would have said to invest in that first. We find all sorts of reasons to to justify the way that we reject some of Jesus' teachings on money. And, and there's, there's so many other ways of this posture showing up of, of rejecting Jesus and, and creating our own justifications for it. We say things like, I, I know scripture talks about how to, how to parent and how to raise children, but honestly, this, this Instagram or this TikTok account feels way more accessible and more in line with how I think. And, and so that's where I'll be taking my advice. Right? It, it may not be biblical per se, but it's doable. It feels, feels better for me. Or I know Jesus talks about humility. I know we see that in scripture. I know he talks about being servant-hearted and laying ourselves down and sacrifice and all that, but honestly, I'm super gifted, right? People are pretty lucky to have me in their lives, honestly. So it's not pride if I'm right. Come on, he wasn't, talk- he wasn't talking to me. He was talking to people who have a problem with this. I don't have a problem with it. I just see things clearly. I know Jesus says that we should work towards reconciliation. I, I know that, that he-, he wants us to model his forgiveness for us. Uh, but that person really hurt me, honestly. They were mean. They were petty. They think way too highly of themselves. They haven't apologized to me. They probably won't. So it's not a grudge. I'm I'm justified in thinking that they're the worst. Because that's how they're acting, right? That's not what Jesus was talking about. 
I know that the Bible says not to be in a romantic relationship with somebody who isn't a Christian since I'm a follower of Jesus, but the pool just feels so small at the church, right? And this person is really cute. They, they're really nice. They treat me really, really well. And they might come around to, to our church or the idea of God at some point. It could be a lot worse. All of these are just different ways that this posture can, can show itself. And I, I think there's so many more. The list could go on and on and on. But, but all of these are, are just examples of ways that we decide that, that we can reject what Jesus says or reject what biblical instruction is because we don't particularly care for what it has to say about that area of our lives. And then we retroactively fill in reasons and justifications for why, honestly, we really have to reject it. We don't even have an option. We do this all the time. We, we do. And not only do we do this in response to Jesus' instructions sometimes, we, we also have this posture towards Jesus as a response to things that happen in the world around us that we don't like. This happens in my heart often. This is, this is my knee-jerk response. I know what the Bible teaches about living in a world that is, that is broken by sin. I know the Bible teaches the widespread effects of, of the way that, the, that, that creation has been torn apart from what, from what God originally intended. But, but sometimes I still choose to blame God for the things that I don't like about it. Or at the very least, sometimes we demand that God explain himself for it. We, we reject what we see that scripture says about the reality of things and then we look for, for ways to justify it. This is a terrible thing. Surely God would do something about it if he cared. We demand that he explain himself. I think C.S. Lewis articulated this incredibly well in, in an essay that he wrote called God in the Dock. Uh, so for context, the dock is not where you keep boats in this, in this context. The dock is a, uh, it's a courtroom phrase in England that is essentially what we would call the stand. So it's where the person who is on trial sits. That is the dock. Uh, but but C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. Those are strong words. Uh, C.S. Lewis is a he knows, he knows how, to, how to say things a lot better than I do, so I quote him a lot, honestly. Uh, but, but I think it's, it's honestly painfully relatable at times, what he said. Essentially what C.S. Lewis is saying in this is that modern people, or all of us, uh, we, we don't tend to see God as an all-knowing, almighty creator king. That is not our first our first inclination to view him. We, we view him sometimes, honestly, more as a, a spiteful, petty figure who is responsible for all the messed up things that we don't like in our world. 
and somebody who better have a pretty convincing argument as to, as to why he put all this bad stuff in my world. Right? We see it not only as our right to question God about these things, but, but we actually view it as our responsibility. We have to demand answers from him. But honestly, I think sometimes we don't even make it as far as questioning God. We, we often only make it as far as rejecting what the Bible says about his nature and who he is. We just decide that our assumptions about him based on what we see must be true. And then we follow the same pattern where, where we justify our rejection by pointing to the things that we don't like in the world around us, the broken world. A world created good that was then wrecked by sin, but, but we don't tend to reference that part in our rejection. And, and I, I could go on and on up here with examples of, of this playing out. But the point that I am trying to make is that this posture of, of rejecting God or rejecting Jesus and then fabricating whatever justification we can, that we can come up with is far more prevalent than I think we would like to admit at times. All the time, honestly. I don't think anyone's ever been glad to admit that. But I think it's important for us to recognize. And, and, and so instead of me standing up here and trying to give an exhaustive list of all the different ways this may work itself out, I think it's actually far more helpful if I try to give you a, a few tools to identify this posture a little more readily. It may be some things I've already said that, that immediately hit and you go, I absolutely do that all the time. Maybe, maybe that is the case for you. But, but I, want, I want to just ask some questions to try to help all of us have, have a broader lens and a broader framework to approach the way that we think about things in our lives to try to identify this posture. And admittedly, all of these questions have a lot of similarities. They have a lot of overlap because they are all just different angles of approaching the same question. They're all just different ways to think about where do I have the same posture as the chief priests in this passage? Where do I reject Jesus and then, and then do whatever it takes to find justification for my rejection? So here's just a few questions. You're welcome to, to write these down. I probably will say more than what ends up on, on the screen, but we're gonna put a few on the screen. So first, uh, I think it's important to ask ourselves, are, are you quicker to debate than repent? Are you quicker to debate than repent? Do you listen to, to, to sermons or teachings or people talk about God thinking about how you might argue it or how you might refute it or how you might pick it apart? Is that the, the initial posture that you have? Or do you enter into that thinking about how you might need to change things about your own heart and you're listening to try to identify some of those things? This is essentially all of Jesus' interactions with the chief priests in scripture, that first response. They hear everything that he says and they are trying to pick all of it apart. They automatically assume that he is wrong and they are right. So, so do we automatically assume that our mindset is correct and anything that challenges that should be fought and debated? Or do we quickly listen to, to guidance or instruction or correction? So are we, are we quicker to debate or repent? 
Next question I think we should ask is, are you quicker to question scripture or question yourself? So do you read things in the Bible uh, just with a constant lens of scrutiny? Just, just thinking about all the different ways that it might be outdated or it might be irrelevant or something may not really apply like, like people have said it has in the past. Is that your initial response? Or do you approach scripture looking for ways that your life might not be aligned with what it teaches? And looking for ways that, that you may be able to apply it in your life so that you can be more in line with what scripture teaches about how we should live. Do, do you approach the Bible exclusively with your own worldview held tightly in your hands and insist that in order to change anything, you're really gonna need to be convinced? Or do you, do you approach it with an open, an open mind and an open heart and open hands with the things that you hold tightly to in your life? Or are you quicker to question scripture or question ourselves? And, and third, are you more inclined to discuss issues or discuss your heart? Are you more inclined to discuss issues or discuss your heart? Do you approach Jesus purely as an intellectually interesting exercise? Do you approach scripture as, as a, this is just a, this is an interesting case study on society. This is something like I enjoy gaining knowledge and I can read this and I can gain some. Is that the way that you approach Jesus and, and scripture? As if it's simply an intriguing topic to discuss and ponder? Or, or do you approach Jesus with, with a desire for heart change? and life transformation? Do you approach Jesus saying, here's, here's where my heart is and I, I want my heart to be more in step with you? I think often, in, instead of being quick to look for ways for us to become more like Jesus and more in step with what scripture teaches about how, how we should live our lives as his followers, we actually find ourselves with a posture that's pretty similar to the chief priests in our passage. We find ourselves in a position where we effectively put Jesus on trial in our own lives over and over and over again. And, and here's what I think is the great irony in, in all of this. I, I think it is fair to say the vast majority of the time when we do this, when we reject Jesus or we reject what scripture teaches and we try to find our own justifications for why, the vast majority of the time it is in an attempt to continue living in disobedience. We're, we're hostile towards Jesus. We reject Jesus and we effectively put Jesus on trial so that we can stay hidden in the dark with our sin when it was Jesus' trial in the first place that led to us being able to be set free from sin. That is the great irony in all of this. It, it's as if we will do anything possible to run and hide from the one thing that will actually help us. I think anyone in the room who has spent any amount of time with, with young children, you, you know this exact behavior. I always tell people no one cares more about adequate hydration than a toddler at bedtime, right? 
When you try to get a, a sleepy kid to go to bed knowing you are having a terrible evening, uh, you are so tired and you don't know it. All they want is a snack, is some water. It's too dark, it's too bright. My bed is too hot, my room is too cold. All of these different things and you're like, you're doing everything other than sleeping which is the only thing that's gonna help you. <laughs> and it, it sounds silly when we talk about it in that context but, but it's the same idea. It's, it's, that's the one thing that is gonna solve what you are trying to do right now. You're trying to make your day better. You're trying to justify your actions and justify your life. And the one thing that will help is the one thing that we consistently reject. Yep. So I, I want us to look uh, as, we, as we close at what, at what John has to say about this. So John is, again, one of, one of the biblical authors of, of one of the Gospels. And he talks about this tendency in all of us in his gospel account. Um, I think most people, if you've spent any time around church, you're probably pretty familiar with the passage, uh, John 3.16, right? I think everybody can, can rattle that off in whatever translation of the Bible you grew up around. Uh, but just a few verses later, uh, actually starting in verse 19, this is how John sums up what we've been talking about. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So Jesus has given all of us, the chief priests included, a way out of darkness, a way out of the darkness in which we live with our sin. Jesus has offered a way out to all of us, but the chief priests in the passage and many of us, we, we choose to attack Jesus instead, to stay in our darkness and to avoid being exposed. And I think one of the biggest lies that the enemy will try to convince you of is that living in darkness and living in your sin is safer and easier than letting the light in. Right. That is the biggest lie that, that the enemy will try to convince you of, and he does a great job of convincing us of that. Jesus was the only person, we say this over and over again, the only person to ever live who does not deserve a single accusation of wrongdoing, but he willingly takes all of it, all of it to, to give us the opportunity to, to enter into the light instead of staying in the darkness. He, he takes on all of it to, to bring light to the darkness and to pay the price for the sin that we are once enslaved to and that some of us are still enslaved to because we have not given that over to Jesus. We have not accepted what he has done and we have not moved into the light that he offers. And, and I just wanna say, I know that the enemy, like I just said, tries to convince us that, that it's easier and it's safer or it's more comfortable to stay in our darkness and the light is going to expose you and the light is going to show everyone who you really are and they're going to reject you and that is not true. Jesus 
brings light to all of this darkness. Jesus does reveal all of those things that are in the darkness, but when it's brought to the light, it can, it can be paid for. It can be, it can be exposed for what it is and the lie that it is. And we can, we can find our identity and the security of what Jesus says about us, what he says is true about us and what he has done for us on the cross. The, the light that Jesus brings is the only place where true freedom is actually found. And, and so what, what we're gonna do today as, as we close, we take, we take communion together. We, we have communion available for, for those who are followers of Jesus who have accepted this reality in their lives, who have accepted what Jesus did in his sacrifice for us in, in bringing light to our darkness and exposing our sin so that it could be healed. He's not exposing it to, to frame you. He's not exposing it to make you feel ashamed in front of others. He is, he, he is exposing it for, for the lie that it is and, and, and the enslavement that it is, and he is, he is offering a way out of that. He's offering freedom. He is offering healing. And, and when we take communion, that is us physically responding to the reality of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. And so we invite people to, to come and, and take that together in response and in, in accepting that reality as we, as we choose instead of rejecting Jesus, instead of rejecting what he says about us and about our lives and finding our own justifications for it, we, we accept that, that Jesus, Jesus is right. What he says is true. And, and the healing that he offers and the freedom that he offers is the only true freedom that we can ever find. And so I, I would love to, to pray for us as we end. The, the communion tables are gonna be opened. We'll have prayer team uh, at, down at the front and up in the balcony. If there's anything that you want to pray through with someone else, we, in, we invite you to respond however you need to respond to, to what the Spirit is doing this morning.